0: Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we humbly bow before you as your children, knowing that our standing with you is all of grace and not of any merit on our parts. And how grateful we are that you have not left us as orphans when you went back to the Father's right hand, Lord Jesus, but the Holy Spirit has come, and he comes to live inside the true blood-bought child of God, And how grateful we are to know tonight that the Spirit of God that indwells us as believers is the author of the verses we're going to look at. And so we pray for His ministry to exalt Christ in our time together. Help there to be a freedom in the Spirit to ask questions, to make comments, and may this not merely be some kind of a lecture. Uh, For those on the way, protect them and guide them. And thank you for these who are here now. Uh, please bless for Jesus' sake and for your glory, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do is, um, um, our verses for tonight are chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, before we get to those new verses, I would like us to read 1-1 through two ten verses we've already covered. And let's do it as fast as we can, popcorn style. If you want to read a single verse, just start reading and I'll walk towards you and get you on the mic. So someone start at 1 verse 1 and then we'll go to verse 2 and so on.
1: So, the some
0: Good. 2?
1: Um,
0: yes. Uh-huh
1: in the hope of the eternal life which God in our life has loved ages Three. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Four. that be May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. For this reason I left you in peace. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you.
0: 6. An elder must be well thought of for his good life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who are not wild or rebellious. 7.
1: not fond of stupid games. Eight. Most good sensible, just devout, self-controlled.
0: Nine.
1: Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince and gainsay. Ten. Prophets and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision.
0: 11. Whose
1: must be stopped, who suffer whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthiness to safe
0: 12. In
1: a pocket. said, Patients are always liars, evil beasts, slow. 13. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may
0: be sound in the faith. 14.
1: Happy to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. 15. Unto pure, all things are pure. Under them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing pure. And even their mind and conscience is defiled.
0: Uh, 16.
1: They are just a for doing anything Chapter 2, verse 1. 2. men to be love 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Four. And
0: the young women to love their
1: husbands and children. Five. Sensible, your workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husband, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Six. Likewise, urge the young man to be sensible. 7. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good
0: deeds of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. 8.
1: And sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 9. To be well pleasing in all things, not answering back.
0: 10. Great. These are verses we've already covered. Uh, There are some back handouts if you missed uh, previous lessons. And if we need more, we'll make some more for next time. Um, Very quickly, I'd like to review... Just select applications we have drawn from the verses we have already read tonight. And uh, quickly, what is a bond servant? Just call it out. he
1: had to serve) And now he's on an optional year where he chooses not to be optional. He chooses to be a full-time slave.
0: Wonderful answer. A bond servant chooses to be a servant of his master or her master for life. And uh, well done, Crystal. And the normal Christian life is to choose to be a bondservant, but it doesn't happen automatically. We have to make that decision before the lordship of Christ. All right, very good. We're off to a good start. Um, what did I mean when I said, don't hide behind your age? It was last week. Don't hide behind your age. has to do with older men and older women in the text. What age did we say likely was involved to be an older man or an older woman? Do you remember? (laughs) Sixty. So I'm just under the wire, but I'm working on it. (laughs) So if you are 60 or over, you are an older man... Or an older woman. Now, why would I say as an application, don't hide behind your age?
1: That means you don't get, uh, retire. That's
0: it. Don't retire. You still have life, opportunity, energy. Keep serving the Lord. Older men are to have a ministry, especially with younger men. Older women are to have a special ministry with younger women. So don't be uh, retired from Christian service. There's no such thing as retirement in Christian service. All right? And you have experience walking with God. You have experience in life. You have experience in the churches you've been a part of. And what you have to offer as an older man or woman is vital. And our body of believers needs you to be involved Okay, very good. Now let's pick it up at verse 11, and this is a new verse. So someone read verse 11 in a nice big voice. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all. Okay, let's start with the first part. When was the grace of God revealed? The grace of God is all through the Old Testament. People who say there's no grace in the Old Testament and there's only grace in the New Testament don't have it right. But when was the grace of God magnificently revealed? The incarnation, Christmas, God becoming a baby, uh, taking on human flesh, not compromising anything about being God and being 100% um, human. You can read about that in John one fourteen. If you hold your place in Titus, someone read John one fourteen to eighteen. Take all those verses. Somebody, nice big voice. John one fourteen to
1: eighteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: Uh, In this passage, grace appears three times, right? Uh, Verse 14, uh, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace without truth is mush. Truth without grace is a hammer. Grace and truth is a beautiful blending. And then in verse 16, for of His, Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace. Uh, You've received grace to be saved and you're receiving grace to be sanctified and you'll be receiving grace to be glorified and you can't ever exhaust God's grace. Grace upon grace. Then we see the third mention of grace, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So when Titus uh, 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, that's what it's talking about. Bringing salvation to all men. Does that mean that uh, salvation is universal? That every human being will be in heaven? No. Doesn't mean that. So all men does not mean that all are saved just by virtue of being a human, but it means in potential what Christ did on the cross made salvation possible. And um, we'll be talking in future studies a little bit more about God's work of electing those who he'll save. But what I like to say is that I can do all the nominating I want as I share the gospel. God has done all the electing from the foundation of the world. So I don't worry about who's elect when I share my faith. I don't get all tied up in knots about it. I just share my faith. I just am obedient to share my faith, and I'll leave the results to God. So let's go on to verse 12. Someone please read verse
1: twelve. Instructing us to guide ungodliness where we desire and to live sensibly,
0: righteously,
1: and godly, and live in the present age.
0: God's grace has appeared. And what does God's grace instruct us? In verse 12, just call it out. to turn from godliness and uh, worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Not to live that way and to be genuinely saved is to abuse God's grace. And we never want to do that. God's grace is unmerited by us favor from God. And we don't ever want to receive God's unmerited favor in the finished work of Christ and then not let grace transform us. We must look different than people who have not been saved. We are not to be just like them, approving what they approve, disapproving what they disapprove, and so on. Another way of saying this is the truly saved have observable progress in holiness. The truly saved, when watched by anybody, believer or non-believer, have observable progress in holiness. So you should be, and I should be, more holy so far in 2015 than we were in 2014 but not as holy as we'll be in 2016 if the Lord doesn't come back for the church first. We should be progressing in holiness. Can you think, can you think, and I'm interested, if you can, of anything that's alive but doesn't grow? There is not a thing that's alive that doesn't grow? Mango trees, cocoa plums. See, I'm learning. I'm learning. There is nothing that is alive that doesn't grow. A baby who becomes life from God at conception grows. In the mother's womb is born and then grows outside the womb, right? Everything that's living grows. And so if a person, a Christian, professes to be a Christian but isn't growing, we have cause to wonder if they're really a Christian. When you're a believer, um, you have an appetite for some things you didn't have an appetite for. You have an appetite for the Word. You have an appetite for Christian fellowship. And you also have an aversion to things that you did not have an aversion to before. You Sin bothers you. In you, it bothers you. And around you, sin bothers you. And that's a good indicator that you truly are alive in Christ You're growing in holiness. And similarly, grace that actually saves a person is grace that sanctifies. Observable progress in holiness is what saving grace looks like after conversion. And saving grace after conversion also sanctifies. Now, I've taught you in the pulpit on Sunday morning and Sunday evening and here what does it mean to be sanctified? God's work of setting a believer apart for his possession and use. Sanctification is God's work of setting a true believer apart from the world, from sin, from Satan, and self, to be God's own possession, we're bought with the blood of Christ, we're no longer our own, and for God's use. And last Sunday morning, remember what my, my mother set out when she entertained guests when I was growing up? Dishes of candy. Dishes of salt snacks that I loved. And I looked at those dishes, and she would sneak up on me and say, don't touch those, they're for the company. Those peanuts and Candies were set apart by my mother for the company's possession and use. You, if you're saved, have been set apart for God's possession and use. And if we don't live apart, characteristically, there's a question, are we saved? If we don't have any interest in being used of God, we just live for ourselves for everything that matters to us only, our selfishness, if that's the characteristic of us, maybe we're not saved. Because true grace that has appeared in Christ, verse 11, instructs the believer to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is not teaching sinless perfection. This is not teaching that you'll never sin after you're genuinely saved. That's not what it's teaching. But it's teaching the trajectory of your Christian life, the tendency of your Christian life, the trend line of your Christian life is holiness. Greater holiness. Um, There should be Traction, a business term. Traction toward being less ungodly and curbing worldly desires and living sensibly and righteously and godly. Now, salvation is of grace. True or false? Grace is cheap. False. It costs the Godhead everything. Grace is costly. But when a believer lives as though grace is cheap, abusing and presuming upon the grace of God, it's taking a costly grace and defanging it. I don't like cats. Sorry. I like dogs. Sorry. But I'm told with a cat, usually you declaw them if they're inside cats, right? Someone who lives with cheap grace defangs costly grace and just lives willy-nilly. Oh, God will forgive me. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, let's go there. Hold your place in Titus. First Corinthians 2.14. Let's read a single verse. Uh, this time and we'll re- read through two fourteen through 3.3, 3, starting at 1 Corinthians two fourteen, we'll read a verse at a time uh, through chapter um, three, verse
1: three. It was unspirited to them, and they can't understand it. The Holy
0: Ghost who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit is. So uh Brenda's uh version of the scriptures said the person who is not spiritual. Does anybody have a different uh translation of the first part of chapter fourteen or first fourteen? Natural. 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 So there's there's three categories of people we're going to run into in these verses. The first category is the natural person, the person who's not redeemed unregenerate, and that person cannot do what? So when a natural person has the light bulb go on with truth, it's because God gave them the ability for the light bulb to go on for truth. And so if you have lost family or lost friends, business associates, a great way to pray for these natural people is that God will give them the ability to to understand the scriptures and salvation, so that's the first kind. Let's go on to verse 15.
1: But he who is spiritual all things, yet he himself is by no one.
0: So the first category of people is natural. They're not in relationship with God through Christ. The second category of person is spiritual. These are opposite. This is the unconverted and the converted. This is the spirit filled and the not spirit possessing. This is the person under God's wrath and the person who's been justified by Christ. These are the opposite extremes, the natural and the spiritual. Verse 16. So who
1: has the mind of the Lord that he will
0: instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? We being those who are spiritual. He's writing to Corinthians. They were saved. They were a mess. It was a messed up, sinning congregation. A uh, man was sleeping with his stepmother. They were taking each other to court. By the way, I can't believe how often Bahamians take each other to court. It's against the Bible. It is against 1 Corinthians 6. It's sin. I said it. The natural person can't understand unless God opens the eyes. The spiritual person um, understands because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I guess I got on the Corinthians because even though this church was entirely messed up, he calls them we. We have the mind of Christ. They were messed up, but they didn't lack salvation. They were messed up. They didn't lack the indwelling Holy Spirit. They were just willfully messed up and they needed to repent. Then chapter three verse
1: one. as the of
0: Christ. Okay, now we've got the third category. Natural, not converted. Spiritual, converted. And now the carnal. Who is the carnal? Who are in that category? um, Yes, they're saved, but they're disobedient to the Word and the Holy Spirit. They're carnal. Carnal means fleshly. They operate out of their flesh. The deeds of the flesh are in Galatians 5. You can read a nasty list there. A person, a believer who operates out of their flesh and not controlled by the Holy Spirit will fulfill the lust of the flesh as a genuinely saved person. Galatians 5. But the person who is spiritual is controlled by the Holy Spirit who lives within. So, the question I have for me is: any given moment, am I spiritual or carnal? Be real honest with you. When people come out the side streets onto Shirley Avenue in the morning rush hour, I have moments of carnality. I'll just be honest with you. And I have to repent before I go any further. I'm real. Any given moment, the true child of God has to ask the Spirit of God, Am I in my flesh or am I in the Spirit's control? If I'm a Christian and I'm in my flesh, what am I called? Carnal. What? Now let's see more about these carnal Christians verse 2 of chapter 3 I you were it not neither the carnal christian can't take solid food she just can't swallow it the carnal man can't take spiritual meat And so what they do if they get enough of a say in a local church is they try to change the pastor from being a preacher of meat to being a preacher of pablum. That's when the believers who are spiritual have to stand up to the carnal Christians. And the leaders of that church have to stand up to the carnal Christians and say, you need to repent so you can have solid food. Don't bring the menu down to your carnal level for those who can eat meat because they're walking in the Spirit. All right, verse 3.
1: For well, you are still controlled by your own sinful desires. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other.
0: He says, I'm sorry, go ahead. Doesn't
1: sorry. that prove you are controlled by your own desires? You are acting like people who don't belong to the Lord.
0: Carnal people behave like they aren't saved. But the carnal people in Corinth were saved. We have to ask the Holy Spirit, and if we're really courageous, ask a brother or a sister in Christ, am I acting carnal in this, or am I acting spirit-led? Wouldn't that change the conversation in the foyer from, boy, the weather's hot, To, in this situation, let me describe it to you in my workplace. This is how I responded. Do you think that's carnal Christianity or spirit-filled Christianity? That would be substantial, meaty fellowship. And that's what we want to pray for this church. That we get past what the average person without Christ talks about. And get to the heart of our spiritual lives in love. That takes trust, it takes transparency, it takes risk. Because if I wait for one of you to be transparent with me, then that we may never have a transparent conversation. But if I am risk, and I risk, and I just like did in this teaching session to say, I can be carnal on my drive into work, I have risked something by being real. And probably, you're going to be more inclined to come to me and say, you know, I have my episodes of carnality and it has to do with money. Would you pray for me, Pastor? Or I have my episodes of carnality it has to do with my marriage. Would you pray for me, Pastor? So, transparency engenders transparency. Clothesness, pride, bulletproof clothing in a local church engenders that. Well, that's convicting for me, perhaps for you. Okay. Um, let's go on uh, back to Titus, back to 2:11. It's saying that the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ is grace personified. He appeared the first Christmas, and as He's appeared, He's, it's instructing us to to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. What is the blessed hope that we're looking for? His coming. There are two installments of Christ's coming. There is the rapture return of the Lord, which will happen first. 1 Thessalonians 4, where the church, in the twinkling of an eye, a medical doctor told me that is 5 sixteenths of a second. The bride of Christ will be gathered to meet the Lord in the air, but not before the graves of the believing dead are opened and the bodies are glorified and reunited with their souls and spirits to go immediately to be with Christ upon physical death. So the rapture return of Christ is first. I believe it's an any time now return. I know of no biblical prophecy that has to yet be fulfilled for the return of Christ to rapture us it could happen that tonight, seven years after that return is the second coming of Christ. Um, the, Tribulation is the unprecedented time of God's judgment poured out on earth. That is after the rapture and before the second coming. Let's contrast the rapture and the second coming. They're separated by seven years. The rapture, Christ doesn't touch down on earth's surface. He comes only to earth's atmosphere. In the second coming, He comes to um, the mount beside the east side of Jerusalem and He... Uh, walks through the eastern gate of the ancient city of Jerusalem. When we were there with a tour, our Jewish guide, looking across the Kidron Valley at the East Gate of Jerusalem, he says, the ancient gate of Jerusalem on the east side is 150 feet below the surface. You can't see it. But the Radisson Hotel was going to build a five-star hotel on this mountain to overlook the ancient city. And they did seismological studies. And do you know what? There's a huge fault line running between the Mount of Olives and the Eastern Gate. Yeah? Yeah. Because Zechariah predicts that when Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives that the mountain will split north to south and he goes through that crevice, massive crevice, and enters the eastern gate to assume David's throne in Jerusalem. So rapture is any time now Christ comes to earth's atmosphere. It's only for the redeemed. By the way, all of you who hold mortgages, your mortgage holders are going to be really ticked. (laughs) Just really upset because where'd you go? I don't know. (laughs) Satan will think of something to explain it and delude. So rapture, return, anytime now. Seven years later, second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ can't be a surprise because we know it's seven years after the rapture. Second coming of Christ is for the world. It's not just for the redeemed. He comes down and touches down on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two. He assumes his literal throne on David's throne, his rightful throne, and he establishes a righteous kingdom for a thousand years. We call it the millennium. He's going to suppress evil by force. It says that in Isaiah 11 that he'll suppress evil with an iron scepter in the millennium. Christ came the first time as a lamb, for sinners slain he 'll come the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Two different things. So what we 've got here is that uh, the appearing of the so- savior here is the rapture it 's the blessed hope, the blessed hope that we should be looking for. We should be teaching our children when I, I told you that when we drew up our will, when our kids were very little. We told the lawyer who wasn't a Christian that my wife and I are probably going to disappear without explanation. Yeah. I made for her. She didn't know whether to get us a cup of coffee or a (laughs) straitjacket. All right. So, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Who, what does it say? Gave himself for us. Why did he do that? To redeem us from what? Lawless deeds. And what else to do? Purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's sanctification. Zealous for good deeds. There's so many things in this verse. But let's just unpack some of them. He gave He gave once for all time. The tense here is the aorist tense, which is a Greek tense that says, a summarized, completed action. He gave himself once for all. With all due respect to my Roman Catholic friends, he is not crucified again every Mass by a priest turning the element, the host, into his actual body and the wine into the actual blood of Christ. That is not right theology. He died once for all. He gave himself once for all and to redeem us. Now, let me define redemption. Remember Hosea in the Old Testament? He was given a tough job. God said to Hosea to marry a wayward woman, morally wayward woman, to be a picture of Israel's spiritual harlotry to God. So can you imagine? You're God's prophet. God says, marry a wayward woman. So Osea, uh obeyed. And things went downhill in their marriage. She got more and more immoral, and she wound up, if this circle is an auction block, she wound up on an auction block, human trafficking, probably naked, standing on this auction block, being sold to the highest bidder to have Her work, the sex industry for that person. Then God says to Hosea, Go to the auction. Imagine. Bid on your wife. Buy her back. Buy her out of her lifestyle. Buy her out of her bondage. Buy her out of her slavery and guilt and shame. Buy her back. That's redemption, and that's why God told Hosea to marry Gomer, and that's why God let Gomer live in sin, and that's why God let Hosea see his wife in the slave marketplace of sin, and that's why God told Hosea to buy her back, because God in love wanted to teach us what redemption is. So redemption is God's work of purchasing us out of the slave marketplace of sin To set us free to do his will that we would never have to go back into the slave marketplace again. That's amazing. That is so beautiful. Unless we look down at Hosea or Gomer. Unless we look down at Gomer, the real person of that time. We all... Have been in the slave marketplace of sin. Maybe our sin wasn't her sin, but we've got we had sin in our past. And Jesus Christ laid down the price of his precious blood to buy us out of the slave marketplace of sin, to say, come on out of there. Get some clothes on. Be productive. Bring glory to my name. Be holy. Be new. Tell others about me and how I can redeem them. And uh, that is such a beautiful thing. And it says that. He gave himself, 14, that he might redeem us. (laughs) Redeem. There's a a voice in Greek of the New Testament that tells you about a verb. Who does what to whom? And the middle voice says that the subject of the, the sentence has the action performed upon him or her. It's the middle voice here. We do nothing to contribute to our redemption. Our redemption happens for us. It happens to us because of God's great love and grace. And don't you think, don't you think, that when Hosea got his wife back and their marriage started to heal and Don't you feel that he protected her like no other husband protected his wife? Don't you think he encouraged her like maybe no other husband encouraged his wife, that she's beautiful, that she's pure, that she's attractive to him, that he's so glad to have her back, that he forgives her? The Lord Jesus, when he redeems us out of that slave marketplace he has a vested interest in us the rest of our lives and for eternity. He just loves us. He cares about us. He, We bear his name, and he cleans us up, and he gives us the new garment of his righteousness, imputed righteousness, and he makes us brand new. And we, we ought to live that way. We ought not to look over our shoulder like a carnal Christian and say, he's going to forgive me anyway, so I'll just walk back in the slave marketplace because it's appealing in this regard. No, no. You remember from where you came, and you won't go back. Redemption that doesn't purify the redeemed probably isn't redemption. You know when these movie stars say that they're born again? Better ask them to define it. Born again that they're making a new record that's selling big. Born again that they found their fifth wife that really is bringing them happiness. God's terms are stolen by the world and redefined. So redemption doesn't mean making up for your own error. It means what I described to you. Being redeemed as being bought and released from the slave marketplace from sin. That's what redemption is. And just like Gomer could contribute nothing to her redemption by her husband, she was a slave. She had no money. She couldn't contribute anything to to her redemption. But her husband, outside the circle, with love and generosity and forgiveness in his heart, he redeemed her. And similarly, we can't contribute to our own redemption. But Jesus Christ, outside the circle, looks in on us and says, I love her. I love him, and I'm going to get them out of that mess as they believe on me. So that brings us to the end of verse 14, and what are we redeemed for at the end of the verse? Zealous for good works. Uh, zealous for good works. Remember one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot? Does anyone know what a zealot was back then? What are the political parties here? I'm still learning. The M and the PLP. The zealots was just like a political party. They kept the Jewish law. They tried. They were zealous to get out from Rome's occupation. They were kind of a militia a religious militia. And here's Simon the Zealot. I guess he was formerly a Zealot, and he came to follow Jesus. Now, freedom for the Jews from Roman rule had its merit, but Jesus never spoke to it, did he? When they asked him, uh, what about taxes? You know, they wanted him to say, those lousy Romans don't pay them a cent. Amina. What did he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. So Simon and his crew were zealous for political emancipation and freedom from Rome, but it wasn't a good enough reason to be a zealot. What are you zealous for? If I asked someone who knows you well and said, Sally Doe, what is she fanatical about? Her grandkids? Bargain shopping? Politics? What about John Doe? You know I'm pretty good. What's he zealous for? What's he a fanatic for? Money. Retirement, status, the right address, the right car to drive. What are you zealous for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you going in the day? What do you think about when you're free to think about anything? When you lay your head on the pillow and you're free to think about anything, what do you usually think about? When you are in the shower or the bathtub and you don't have anything pressing on you that you necessarily have to think through, what do you think about? When you're driving, it ought not to be a mindless activity, but almost. When you're driving, what do you think about? If you were dying, what would you Make it a point to tell your grandchildren? What would you make it a point to tell your husband or your wife? What are you zealous for? What does what the verse say we ought to be zealous for? Good works. Reminds me of Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we the redeemed are his workmanship. The Greek word there is poema, from which we get the word poem. Ephesians 2.10, for we believers are his poema. There's no two poems the same. Of all these people, so good to see the chairs full. Of all these people, none of you are the same. You have different DNA. But you have different good works that God prepared beforehand that you should do. The person on your left has unique good works to everybody else here. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Amazing! God determined the good works that He wants you to do before you go to heaven beforehand. Before you were saved before you were conceived. Amazing. So a good thing to be zealous for is to discover the good works that God wants you to do. To make that a priority, a burning desire. And I would submit, as we don't hide behind our ages, that we get involved in a ministry in Calvary Bible Church if we're uninvolved. We've got too many people wearing too many hats and too many people wearing no hat. Get involved in a ministry. Try something. We won't sign you up for life. Try something. And let me tell you this. The best way to discover your spiritual gift is not to do an inventory on paper. I'm sorry. The best way to discover your spiritual gift is to get involved in ministry, to roll up your sleeves and do a ministry. And then what I say is figure out what spiritual gift is required for that ministry. Do it. If an hour doing that feels like five minutes, then that's your spiritual gift. If five minutes doing that ministry feels like an hour, it's requiring a gift you don't have. That's all right. That's all right let's give an example my wife and other women are going to visit shut-ins and it's wonderful ministry and one of the spiritual gifts required to do a good job of visiting shut-ins and ministering the word and praying is mercy so if you say I want to visit shut-ins and tell somebody's already doing it they say great we need all the help we can get and then you visit shut-ins and five minutes seems like an hour then okay just say I don't think this is my thing but if an hour seems like five minutes, that's your thing. Or any other ministry that requires the gift of mercy. And if you don't know what ministries require what gift, speak to me or one of the pastors will help you. But let's get zealous for good deeds. Let's uh, be about that. The good deeds that God's prepared beforehand that we would do. Any comments or questions? Did I get into your kitchens? I get into your kitchen because I love you. And I don't want you to hide behind your ages. And just to wither away with atrophy. If you don't use a muscle, if you're bedridden due to illness, then eventually you can't walk even when you went into bed and you could. Because your muscles atrophy if you don't use them. We don't want spiritual muscles atrophying because people hide behind their age and say I can't do anything in church anymore we don't want that if you need an idea of what ministries need help speak to any pastor and we'll try to help you so don't don't waste your zeal now I'm sorry I've I've talked about pets with cats tonight but you know what really makes me shake my head When I see a car with five bumper stickers in the back, spay and neuter your pets. They're zealous about that. I'm not against spaying and neutering a pet, but if that's what you splash over your whole back of your car, I think you've got a mixed up priority. You're zealous for the wrong thing. Or save the whales. Okay, I like whales. We should try to save them. But what about babies? What about babies? Humans, there are people that are zealous. There are some people that are apathetic. I know that. But people who are zealous, we better ask, they better ask, am I zealous for what God is zealous about? Am I zealous for what God is zealous about? Verse 15, someone please read that.
1: These things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you.
0: Okay, who is he addressing specifically in verse 15 when he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority? Let no one disregard you. Titus, Pastor Titus, young guy. Timothy and Titus were proteges of Paul. He's young, we don't know how young he is. One thing that I really appreciate about Calvary Bible Church is that I sense you respect my God-given authority. I have no authority except God gives me authority as a pastor. Without the role of pastor-teacher here, I have no authority over you, but... God has called me to be the pastor-teacher. So by virtue of that calling and that office and role, God has given me authority. Boy, I want to handle it carefully. I want to love you. I want to be fair. I want to be biblical. I want to be humble. I want to realize that if someone falls into sin, but for the grace of God, there go I, and tenderly restore and bring about repentance. But God has endowed with pastors an authority. And as far back as the New Testament first century, there were people who needed to be exhorted about following that authority. They needed to be reproved about denying pastoral authority. As far back as the first century, let no one disregard you. And again, I appreciate your respect that I see and feel. I don't demand that any of you call me pastor, but when you do, it's a gift. Whether you call me Pastor Elliot or Pastor Rob, either way is fine with me, but when you give me the gift of the word pastor, you are telling me that you love me and you respect the role that God has given me in your life. That I can check on you in love, that I can correct you in love, that I can have a role in your life and your family. And I appreciate it. And I know the other pastors in our church, the other 10 pastors, that when you call them Pastor Jerry or Pastor Wenley or Pastor Errol or whoever, that that you're saying the same thing to them. You're saying, I acknowledge the role that your ordination, your examination of theology and, and, and pastoral practice, I I understand that God has placed you in my life and in our church's life to be servant leader. And I'm going to give you respect by calling you Pastor um, Tommy or whatever the case might be. And so as far back as the first century, there are people who had a problem with that. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, didn't say, don't worry about that, by the way, you know, just let it roll. He says, no, when that happens, exhort these people, reprove with all authority, God's authority. Let no one disregard you. I'll leave it to you to ask, so far in your Christian lives, have you done a good job of respecting pastoral authority? Have you not? Is it an issue still? And then, what could you do about that if, if you, before God, say, you know, I, have a, I buck against pastoral authority? It doesn't sit with me. You know, I, they're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. No, we're not perfect, but God has raised us up to have a role, and none of us take it lightly. All right. So, on we go to uh, chapter three, verse one.
1: Someone.
0: So now he's telling Pastor Timothy to teach those in the congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities. That is human rulers and authorities. So here's how it works. When our children are still at home, we have the responsibility to teach them to respect our authority as mommy and daddy. If they don't learn to respect the authority of their daddy and mommy, they have no chance of learning to respect authority in the church or authority in the society. So if you've got mummies and daddies with children still at home who are demanding respect and exercising their God-given authority over their less than fully grown children, then those kids can come into a body of believers like this and can have little problem with saying, okay, that's Pastor Elliot, and these are the other ten pastors, and God has put them in place, and we need to respect the authority of God that he's given to them to help us. When a child understands that within the family of God, then they have a shot of understanding authority in the culture. Police. Politicians. By the way... There's no perfect politician, and our salvation is not in a politician. But we need to pray for our politicians that will come to saving faith in Christ, that they'll come under the book, and that they won't serve self, but they'll serve the greater good of Bahamians. It's easy to talk bad about politicians. It's harder to, in the prayer closet, pray for them. And you can't show the love of Christ to someone you're not prepared to pray for. So if you have a grudge in this church, someone that you feel has hurt you and you haven't forgiven them, you can't love them as Christ wants you to love them until you forgive them and pray for them. It's that practical. Okay, so... They're told in 15 that uh, Titus should say, Get the church supporting and recognizing pastoral authority, and then told Titus to tell the congregation that they should be subject. That's the word we saw last time hupo tasso, compound verb, hupo under tasso to stand, a military term. Tell the congregation to stand under the rulers, the authorities, the civil authorities. By the way, that has an exemption. In Acts 5, the apostle said, we shall obey God rather than men. So if human politicians legislate unrighteousness and demand unrighteousness, then we don't obey. I don't know if homosexual marriage will come to the Bahamas. I pray it won't. But I'll tell you this. If I was still pastoring in Pennsylvania... I'm not going to back off one bit about God calling homosexuality sin. If I go to jail, I go to jail. And I've told the the church I left that if I go to jail, then you've got uh, eight deacons. We didn't have have pastors or elders. We had deacons. You've got eight deacons that will preach in my place until they're all in jail. And the rest of you men get ready to preach when there's nine of us in jail. We must obey God rather than men. So, um, so remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, which loops back to the good deeds of 15. Verse 2. 3 2.
1: To be gentle, showing every consideration for all men.
0: Thank you. Uh, 3.
1: our days
0: so he 's saying, tell your congregation that although they 're redeemed and made new in Christ right now that they ought to remember where they 've come from, the sin that enslaved them, the problems they had in being rebellious against God and the best evangelists are the ones who don't forget the depths of sin that they came out of because of Jesus. And I told you in a morning a message that we need to look at the lost, the vile, the evil, not as our enemy, but as victims of the enemy. And when we start to see non-believers that way, we can actually pray for them. We can actually Love them. We can actually be tender and sensitive to presenting the gospel to them with a humility that we're just one beggar who found the bread of life, helping another beggar to find the bread of life, Jesus. And so he said, Remember these things. Uh, Don't malign people. Don't be uncontentious. Be gentle, showing consideration for all men. For once, You were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. And then verse 4. Now this is interesting. There are two Greek words for love. Love in the New Testament. One is agape, which is the highest kind of love. It's God's love. It's the kind of love that we're supposed to love others with. But agape is not here, surprisingly. The verse in 4 has the word uh, phileo. Phileo, love, is friendship love. So this verse is stressing that the Lord Jesus in his humanity was fond of humanity. Think about that. They rejected Him. They despised Him. They eventually crucified Him. But He was fond of them. That's amazing. In His humanity, He had a fondness for them. Then, verse
1: 5. He says that not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy
0: Spirit. This is packed. He saved us not on the basis of our good works because Isaiah the prophet said that our good works are as filthy rags, right? So it's not that we did good works to endear ourselves to God and then He saved us. That's not the basis of salvation, but rather, the basis of salvation is the mercy of God. Let me... Teach you about the mercy of God. The mercy of God and the grace of God are different sides of the same coin. The mercy of God is God not giving us the bad we deserve. The grace of God is God giving us the good we don't deserve. So, if I'm on JFK going out to the airport to catch a flight and I'm late and I'm speeding, This is just theory. (laughs) Just theory. And the policeman catches me, pulls me over, looks at my license and says, Mr. Elliot, you are 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. I am? Yes, you are. And then he talks to me and maybe gets some sense of why I was speeding. And in kindness and mercy, he says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm going to give you a warning. Go catch your flight. That's mercy. He doesn't give me the bad I deserve. But you know what grace would be? If he pulled out his wallet with his own money, with his own money, with his own money, and gave me a $100 bill and said, Now, do something nice for your family when you get to Canada to see your parents. That's grace. That's grace. Did you hear me? With his own money. God, in his mercy, saved us. He, his wrath upon us was there. We deserved his wrath. But in Christ, he doesn't give us the wrath that we deserve because Jesus took our wrath for us. When I share with kids, little kids, I say that Jesus got your spanking on the cross so you didn't have to get a spanking from God. And so it's not based on our good works that he saved us, but according to his mercy, then the washing of regeneration by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the... Regeneration is the Holy Spirit's work of giving life to what was dead. We were dead in trespass and sin, Ephesians 2.1. But when the Holy Spirit, when Christ saves us, immediately the Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us life where there was death. Death is separation in Scripture. So when we're death dead spiritually before Christ, we're separated from a meaningful relationship with Holy God. But when the Holy Spirit, after our conversion, gives us life, life is connection. And the Spirit of God regenerating you gives you a connection with God that lasts for eternity. And that involves, that regeneration involves a renewing of you. And then six? Okay, so the, the grammatical term is an antecedent, and the antecedent in verse six is whom is back to the Holy Spirit. So this verse is saying, the Holy Spirit God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here's, here's the deal. The power and the person of the Holy Spirit is infinite because He's God. And so there's a full measure of the Holy Spirit that's ladled out to every true Christian at the point of conversion. God is not skimpy. It's not like a big pot of soup at the soup kitchen for the needy and you've got to be careful you don't ladle out too much soup to the first person so that the last person has something. God the Holy Spirit is infinite so He can be all present and is all present in every born-again Christian. He's lavished upon us. That's a beautiful reality. And so, we don't pray for more of the Holy Spirit. We've got all the Holy Spirit there is to get from the moment of conversion. Let's go to 1 Corinthians twelve, thirteen. First 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. I'll read it just for sake of time. Talking to this wayward church in Corinth. 1213, 1 Corinthians, for by one Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So the Spirit baptism is not selective, nor is it delayed. The Spirit baptism is automatic and instantaneous at conversion. We don't know about it probably, but it happened. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. Now watch this. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So we all trusted Christ at different dates, times, but the moment each of us transferred our trust to Christ, the Holy Spirit baptized us, placed us into the body of believers, the church placed us into Christ, gave us a spiritual gift or two, and we were made to drink of him. We don't have to beg him to baptize us after conversion, a second blessing, evidenced by tongues. We don't have to do that. We were all made to drink of the one spirit. These are, these are the guys that he wrote to in Corinth were messed up. <laughs> but they weren't to pray for a second blessing of the Holy spirit to fill and baptize them. They were, they were told to live according to your identity. Repent and live out who you are already in Christ. All right. So, um, whom He poured out, verse six, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just two quick points, and then we'll leave a little time at the end. Justified, God's work. So let's back up. Earlier tonight, we said sanctification is God's work, not our work. Redemption is God's work, not our work. Justification is God's work, not our work. And God's work and justification is to declare the guilty innocent because of Christ. So, remember Judge Ito and O.J.? Remember that thing dragged on for a long time and The last day in court, there's OJ perspiring and looking at the jury, I believe, and, and they, uh, they acquitted him. They declared him not guilty. I personally think he was guilty. The civil court ruled that he was responsible for their deaths, but the judge recognized the jury's verdict as not guilty and he walked away. Justification is God acquitting you, although you're a sinner, and saying you're innocent. And you're acceptable to a holy God because Christ died in your place. And Christ gave you all of His righteousness and it's now yours. And you're accepted in the Beloved. Beautiful. Justified. That by being justified by His grace, of course it's by grace. We can't earn it. We might be made heirs According to the hope of eternal life. According to means in proportion to. Going back to the soup line in the um, illustration previous, in that soup line, you gave soup uh, not according to because it's, it was limited. The amount was limited. And so you divvied it out and you portioned it out and you were a little stingy, maybe, to what you wanted to do. But this is saying that God in his salvation gave us heirship with Jesus Christ as according to the hope of eternal life. Now, here's how I picture according to versus out of. When you ladle out of the kettle at the soup kitchen for the needy, you're giving out of the kettle, not according to the kettle. If Bill and Melinda Gates came to Atlantis on a vacation and they decided to visit Calvary Bible Church, and the offering went around, and they gave a hundred dollars, that would be giving yeah, that would be giving out of their billions, right? Out of their billions. But if they gave a check for a 100 million dollars to Calvary Bible Church, that would be giving according to their riches, in proportion to their riches. Which, if I can make it more personal, when the offering bags come around on Sunday, we ought not to be tipping God like a waiter. We should be at least tithing. And we should be giving proportionately out of what God has given us in the previous six days. The New Testament doesn't say a percentage, but I'll tell you this. When you look at the tithes of the Old Testament, there were three 10% tithes. One was administered every three years. That was 23 and a half, 23 and a third percent that the nation of Israel was to tithe. Now you could say, well, they didn't have income tax and there wasn't an infrastructure of government. That's true. But 23 and a third percent was the law. Although the New Testament doesn't specify a percentage, but I would submit that we who know God by grace, that grace-giving maybe should even be more than 10%. But I'll leave that with you. It's between you and the Lord. I don't know what anybody gives to this ministry, and I never will. I don't want to know. Because I'm a human being, and if I knew that Sally Brown gave a lot and Millie, Minnie Mouse gave a little, then I might be preferential and partial, and I don't want that. So I don't know what anybody gives. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But I know we need to give more because we're falling behind every Sunday to what we need by expenses, and that I'll leave it at that. So it's saying... That God justified us by grace that was according to the hope of eternal life. How great is the hope of eternal life? Whoa. Is it limited like a soup kettle in a a, uh, kettle soup line? No. It's more like Melinda and Bill Gates' wealth. It's huge. And God gave us grace to save us and to sanctify us out of and in proportion to a limitless hope of eternal life. An endless hope of eternal life. What a Savior. What a salvation. Now, I only have three takeaways tonight that I want you to put in the pocket of your purse or in the pocket of your pants, gentlemen. Three takeaways. Do you operate under cheap or costly grace? That's as easy as asking, do I sin and then no God will forgive me and I sin anyway? Do you operate under cheap or costly grace? Second takeaway, Jesus took a special interest and involvement in you. When you were on the slave block of sin, Jesus took a special involvement in you and he did everything necessary to put down the price to redeem you, to free you from that slave marketplace and took you by the hand and said, now you're free to do my bidding. So do his bidding. Do his bidding. You're not the boss of your own life. Do his bidding. Do his bidding. His bidding is found in his word. And third, and last, are you zealous for zealous worthy things? Simon the Zealot was zealous, but he wasn't zealous for a big enough thing. He just wanted to get out from the boot of Rome. That wasn't a big enough cause. Are you zealous for zealous worthy things? And based on what we've seen tonight, the good works that are you are to discover that God prepared beforehand to do is what you should be zealous over. Find a ministry in our church, or your church, if you're not, this is not your church. Find a ministry. Every local church should be like the space shuttle. All crew and no spectators. Find a ministry. Don't hide behind your age. Let me pray and then I'll ask some questions. Father, thank you for your word that is precious. Thank you that it's clear. Thank you that it's compelling we would bow thankful for your word and we would bow to the lordship of Christ. Lord, conform us to your image without debate or resistance. Please conform us to your image that we would be a joy to your heart and a blessing to this church or whatever church we're from and a blessing to our community that needs Christ. And we pray this in the Lord Jesus' precious and exalted name, together, Amen. Amen. Questions? Comments?
1: In,
0: in Titus two eleven.
1: Titus two eleven. It says for the grace reason this is the Yes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This translation says, "For all." translation says,
0: "To Yes. That was something I didn't delve into, although I have a lot of notes on it. Um, the world is used in uh, three ways in the New Testament. The world is the, can be the created universe. It can be humanity in general, and it can be a worldview that cheerfully leaves Christ out of everything. One way to look at this is that the all-men there is talking about the elect of God for salvation. Um, And there are some verses like John 10, 11 and 15, and Ephesians 5, 25. It talks about, um, well, I'll go to John 10, this is something that I will be needing to teach on, not just here, but in other settings here in the church family. John ten, eleven, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That would seem to be teaching that Jesus laid down his life for the elect, the sheep, Verse 15, Jesus still speaking. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep again. Now, there are other scriptures that need to be harmonized with this and explained, and I, I really don't have time this evening. I'm sorry. But it's a good question, and I think that's maybe a beginning answer. I know it's not maybe as complete as it could be for sure. Okay. Thank you. Someone else? The the woman who gave her all, and shouldn't that be the new measure uh, for tithing? Jesus, um, in the sense that we recognize that all that we own, all that we have is his, he owns it. And so then we give out of that back to him voluntarily as love, loving gift and worship. Um, Jesus commended her because she gave her all, and those who gave more than her didn't give proportionately what she gave. Right. But I would say that um, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. So Jesus taught that our hearts follow our debit cards. Billy Graham said years ago that he could tell the authenticity and the vibrancy of a Christian's life by his checkbook. What that believer choose to pay on. Um, now, Presumably everybody had an electric bill. Everybody had... Uh, a rent or a mortgage. So what Billy Graham was saying, I think, is when you get by those staple bills, those basic given fixed expenses, what does a believer do with the money that's left over? So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, but Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you want to pray for this church more, than give more money. I'll just be blunt. If you want to, you want to pray for a missionary more that our church supports, then invest financially in that missionary. We, um, not to blow our own horn, but last night we follow a man on Facebook that's a committed biblical Christian and he preaches courageously at Mormon temples. Tells Mormons that Joseph lied. If you want to check his website, josephlied.com. He's going to a temple opening. Where is it, Beth? Indianapolis. Indianapolis, Indiana. He's going in a week or so to a temple, LDS temple opening in Indianapolis. And he wanted, he needed some money for food, hotel, rental car, whatever. So we gave him some money by our credit card. Now we're going to pray for Rob Skilova. Savolka. We're going to pray for Bob Savolka. Rob Savolka. Because we've invested in his ministry. We're going to read his prayer letter, electric prayer letter, electronic prayer letter. What happened in Indianapolis? Because we've invested and put our money where our mouth is. Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thanks. Someone else?
1: We can tell the depth of our love to the
0: giving. Your depth of your love for Jesus? Yes. 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 Brent is asking, can we tell our own depth of our own love for Jesus in what we choose to give? Yes, for that yes. reason. I remember traveling was in my church,
1: and Pastor Thompson said, private Thompson said, Brenda, I heard you said that I see you give it.
0: Yeah, now that was a setup where he knew what people gave, which I don't. But yeah, um, I'll tell this, with this story, I'll, I'll quit. Um, I've talked to you about a lady that God used to save my parents, point them to Christ to save my parents. She was a wealthy, affluent enough, like comfortable, suburban, stay at home wife and mother. Her husband owned two car dealerships. He was killed. In an auto wreck, and he had lots of life insurance, but there was a loophole. She didn't get any death benefit from her husband's passing. So she went from being comfortable and at ease to financial ease to having to support her family. So she went to her church and asked if she could do a nursery school in the basement, and they agreed. And that's how I got to know her as a little boy in nursery school. My parents were saved through her testimony. And then um, she also cleaned houses. She had two jobs to make ends meet. And, um, she was at her Baptist church one night, and there was missionaries from Child Evangelism Fellowship who were seeking to go to Greece as CEF missionaries. And they basically said, we need support, financial support, and would you pray about what you'll do? And, and they passed the plate, and there was a pledge card, and Mrs. Clements felt A battle with the Holy Spirit because she read the pledge card and she basically argued, she was a very honest woman, she argued with God, the most I could give Laura would be $1 a month. That's all I could give with everything else going on, and that's almost not worth giving because of the administrative hassle to process $1 a month. Well, the Holy Spirit prevailed and she wrote on the card $1 per month. Eventually, the couple went to Greece And eventually they became the field leaders of all child evangelism missionaries in Greece. And years later, they told Mrs. Clements, do you remember the night we were at your church and we asked for prayer and financial support? And she said yes. And uh, they said, you know, before that meeting, we were very discouraged and thought God was perhaps not leading us to be missionaries. But we asked God if he would give us one monthly supporter or more that we would go forward in faith and your card your pledge card was the only card that came in that night and so based on your pledge we we went forward as missionaries and God has brought much fruit for children coming to Christ in Greece where your treasure is your heart will be also and so when we talk about giving monetarily to God, uh, sometimes a little means a lot. Sometimes a little means a lot. So I'll leave that with you. Again, I want to underscore I don't know what anybody gives financially, and I never want to know. I've never known my pastor it's all these years I don't want to know. I won't let anybody tell me. So it's between you and the Lord. Anything else?
1: about giving, there's a discussion, I'm sorry, when you speak about giving, there's a discussion. Does your giving, this is not, not your tithes, now above and beyond uh-huh. your tithes, your offering. Yeah. Does it have to go into the church? Can your giving be to needy persons? Can your giving be to a cause for someone who, you're showing the love of God. Yes. Can that be considered also?
0: Yes, Monique's question is in our financial giving to the Lord through the local church, is there a place for also giving financially to the needy or to other worthwhile Christian ministries? And my answer to that would be yes. But I think our principal responsibility is to our local church and then um, to give beyond a tithe or even an offering uh I think it's very good. I think it's fine. We haven't done it for years, but when we, for a time, Beth and I had, uh, not just on paper, not in actuality, we had segregated our money so that we had set aside money from my paychecks for the express purpose of giving to the local church. And then we had a different percentage set aside for giving to causes, people we came to know about that were needy or, or, um, mission projects or, whatever the case might be. And so, yes, um, look after giving to your local churches first, and then as the Lord provides and as he leads, I think it's fine to give to worthy causes beyond the local church. Very good question. Wow, it's warm in here. Bless you for coming. Bless you for hanging in there.